You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Devin Lincoln. I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. Our topic today is charter schools and a fascinating discussion that is happening statewide about the impacts charter schools have had on traditional schools. Joining me to discuss are two of our most experienced attorneys in charter school law, who just happen to be two of my favorite attorneys out there. First, I want to introduce my good friend, Claudia Weaver. Claudia, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm also an attorney in the Monterey office, and I've worked on charter work with uh, Ed and Devin for a long time. I've been with the firm since 2004. Before I joined Lozano Smith, I was actually on a school board in a small district in uh, northern Santa Cruz County for about 12 years. Great. Well, next, I'm privileged to introduce Ed Sklar. Hi, Ed. Hi there, Devin. Uh, I'm Ed Sklar. I'm a the managing partner of uh, Lozano Smith's Walnut Creek office, and I've served as the co-chair of the charter school practice group for a number of years, too many years to count. A very long time. Eons. Uh, But uh, happy to be with you. Great. Okay. Now, as I said in the introduction, our topic is how charter schools have affected traditional public schools. One way I've been thinking about this topic, getting ready for today's recording, is How many charter schools are too many charter schools? And how do you measure that? And who gets to decide? I'd like to start by discussing briefly the history of charter schools in California as a backdrop to why we're having this conversation now. So first, Ed, can you help us by telling us a little bit about the history of the Charter Schools Act in California and what were some of the reasons it was adopted? Sure. Charter schools came to California, the idea of charter schools came to California um, there after the first state adopted their charter school laws, which was Minnesota, and that was in uh, the, the early 90s. A- at that time, there was a lot of discussion going on uh, countrywide in regard to uh, educational reform and how to bring those about. And all over the country, and including in California at that time, you would hear the discussion about school vouchers, which was basically a concept of sending money to public money to private schools so that uh, kids who were attending traditional public schools could attend private schools. And that was a push that never really took off in California, but was of serious discussion. And so in order to counter that, because the concept of sending public funds to private schools uh, was abhorrent to folks, particularly Democrats, particularly uh, uh, those with a more progressive political agenda. And so there was this happy meet in the middle or not so happy meet in the middle, which was the idea of charter schools. So first thing, fending off the voucher movement, which in 1992, the California Charter Schools Act passed. In 1993, there was a, a ballot initiative on the California uh, on the California ballot for some type of voucher program. It lost, and that may have been as a result of the fact that the educational reform movement l- was looking, in California anyway, to charter schools as opposed to school vouchers. 
The other reason that uh, charter schools arrived in California, and, and the California Charter Schools Act, just for clarification, was passed in 1992, it's evidenced by what you see in Education Code Section 47601, which is the very start of the Charter Schools Act in California. Uh, and the text talks about expanding choice for parents, increasing opportunities, and what was pretty important was stimulating competition between traditional schools and charter schools. And that's where a lot of the conversation in California has lay over the past 26 years, 27 years that since the Charter Schools Act was passed, it's all about stimulating the competition between traditional school districts and charter schools. And as we get further into our discussion today, I think that's going to be an important point to remember. Yeah, that's great. Great. So, Claudia, why don't we kind of set the scene? And can you tell us a little bit about how charter schools are authorized in California? Yeah, good idea. So most of the time, folks who want to establish a new charter school will submit a charter petition to the governing board of the school district where they're proposing to locate their charter school. Um, And before I go on, I just want to note also that there are also charter schools that are initially authorized by a county office of education, and those are known as countywide charters, and a few that are actually authorized directly by the state, known as statewide charters. But most charter schools start out by petitioning an individual school district. The board, after they receive the petition, they review it and they determine if it meets the requirements that are set out in the Charter Schools Act. And under the law, the um, every charter petition has to include reasonably comprehensive descriptions of 15 required elements. And those elements are things like the educational program, obviously, staff qualifications, health and safety procedures, and how the charter school is going to achieve a racial and ethnic balance that's reflective of the district or it's submitting the petition. Once it receives that petition, the district board has 30 days to hold a public hearing to consider the level of support for the petition by teachers, employees, and parents of the district. And the board actually has to make a decision to deny or approve that petition within 60 days of receiving it. Okay. Now, a school district can't just deny a petition for any old reason, right? Um, Tell us about the circumstances where a school district can deny a charter petition. So a, a school board can only deny a charter petition if it makes findings that support at least one of six grounds for denial that are listed in the statute. And the, I'd say the big three of those grounds for denial are that the charter presents an unsound educational program, that the petitioners are demonstrably unlikely to successfully implement their program, or that the petition doesn't contain reasonably comprehensive descriptions of those required elements I mentioned earlier. Now, one thing the law does not allow is for a board to consider the fiscal burdens that approval of that petition may bring to the district. You know, for example, the board could not deny a petition on the grounds that having to do oversight of the charter school would be unduly costly for the district and its staff. Right. Now, if the board does deny a petition, the petitioners can appeal to the County Office of Education. And if they're denied by that COE, they can then appeal up to the State Board of Education. Okay. Okay, and now once an agency approves a charter petition, 
They're responsible for oversight of that charter school, right? Right. Okay, thank you. Um, Now, I believe the original act created a cap on the number of charters that could be authorized. Is that right, Ed? That's correct. When the Charter Schools Act was first passed in 1992, uh, what the law allowed for is for the establishment of 100 charter schools. And uh, for no more than 10 charter schools in any single district, Los Angeles Unified had some, uh, my recollection, had some, some exceptions in the statute that allowed them to establish a number of their own charter schools and operate a number of their own charter schools. Uh, which I, I'm presuming were supposed to be dependent charter schools. But uh, yeah, the, the cap at the beginning was 100 charter schools. Okay. And how many are there now? There are, at, at the start of the 2018-2019 school year, there were about a little north, or north of 1,300. So I think it was like 1,306 charter schools in California, for which... There were over 600,000 students attending charter schools. Um, and, and once again, this counts as both what are known as independent charters and dependent charters. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they basically comprise, those 600,000 students comprise about 10% of the total public school students in California. Wow, that's amazing growth for, for what are we at? 27 years. 27 years? That's amazing. Um, Okay, so of those 1,300-plus charter schools, can we look at some patterns? Do charters seem to be concentrated in certain areas? A charter petition can be submitted to any school district. We know that. But I certainly know that some school districts have none. Some counties have very few. Some areas tend to have a lot more charter schools than others, right? And are there trends we can see there? Ed? Yeah, you you will see trends. There's uh, greater concentrations of... uh, charter schools, particularly classroom-based charter schools in uh, urban areas in, uh, in California, so greater amount in San Diego Unified, San Francisco Unified, a lot in uh, heavy concentration in Los Angeles Unified mm-hmm. boundaries, as well as in Oakland Unified. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you will see is a focus on, in regard to educational reform, Trying to attack the opportunity gap. So you will see uh, uh, charter schools uh, going into areas, particularly where there is a, uh, a significant concentration of communities of color and try and uh, 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 go into the districts that have high percentages of students with uh, students of color and establish charter schools there. You will also see um, a lot of what are known as non-classroom-based mm-hmm. charter schools. Mm-hmm. Those are like the, the internet-based charter schools that, that we've heard about. Um, those are, you will see a lot of concentrations of those in sort of outside of the urban areas where travel is more difficult. You have maybe less diverse populations who are interested in providing a more protective educational environment. And so they like the concept of their child being educated at home. Mm-hmm. And, and that's for a lot of different reasons, be they religion, personal, travel reasons, transportation re- difficulties. Um, you'll see those communities in uh, outside of the urban areas and uh, where there are less densely populated, less dense populations having uh, some focus on uh, non-classroom based charter schools. 
the divide is about 74% are classroom-based charter schools and about 26% of the charter schools in California are non-site-based or non-classroom-based. Yeah, wow, that's significant. Then, then there's a third category, and you will see uh, school districts uh, and county offices establish what are known as dependent charter mm -hmm. schools, where basically these are charter schools where the petition is basically, you know, prepared by district staff, um, and that is, and the school is operated by uh, the school district or county office, and uh, that's where these, um, basically the districts or the county offices want to have the advantages of innovative programming and less regulation that the independently operated charter schools have, and so they create dependent charters. Okay. Okay, great. So, one more question before we get into the conversation about what's going on currently. What are some of the ways, generally, that charter schools affect traditional schools, Claudia? Well, as Ed mentioned, if you look back in the Ed Code around Section 47601 at the beginning of the Charter Schools Act, it's really clear that the legislature intended for charter schools to provide competition for traditional schools. And it's true that many charters do exactly that. But since the act was enacted back in 1992, we've also seen a number of unanticipated effects on traditional public schools. And one obvious example is the competition for students. If we remember that school districts and charter schools are compensated by the state for their ADA, their average daily attendance, each kid in a seat means funding for the school. And some districts, and um, Oakland springs to mind, have seen a tremendous number of students moving out of traditional schools and into charter schools. And this has left that district and a lot of other districts with no choice but to consolidate or close schools sometimes. Hmm. You know, another concern that has emerged over the years is the uneven distribution of students with special needs. Right. And, you know, in our experience, many charters simply don't enroll the same percentages of special needs students as traditional schools do. And those students generally are going to cost a school more money to educate. There's lots of reasons why this happens. And truthfully, it's not always because the charter school doesn't want to support kids with special needs. But the result is that this is a burden for our traditional public schools who are tasked with educating the high, a higher number of those students. Mm -hmm. And of course, facilities is another issue. Many of you know, since the passage of Prop 39 in 2000, districts that approve charter schools are responsible for providing those charter schools with facilities that are reasonably equivalent to the school facilities that charter school students would be utilizing if they were enrolled in district schools. This is a big burden for districts as well, especially ones that are already impacted space-wise. You know, and sometimes you have a situation where a district school is actually sharing space with a charter school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, there's labor and employment issues, and most charter schools are not unionized. And as we're going to talk about, I'm sure, later, um, many labor unions see the rise of charter schools as an existential threat. Yeah, okay, great. That's a great backdrop for this conversation. So, can, yeah, Ed. Can I make one comment on the, on the special education front? Of course. Um, and the students with special needs that Claudia was mentioning. A lot of times what you'll see is the conversation between a school district and its charter where 
particularly at the time that they're that the charter school is maybe renewing its charter petition and the question comes up well what percentage what are your percentage of students with special needs or with disabilities that that are, are attending your school and the charter school is able to say that the percentage of students with special needs that they are educating uh, are close to the percentage of students with special needs uh, of the district, of uh, the students attending the, the traditional district schools. Right. However, most times when you look at that breakdown, it's the students with special needs who are attending the charter school are students who, who have less significant or require um, less intervention. And so you'll see the students with special needs who are attending the charter school really require some less significant interventions. And the students who are attending with special needs who are attending the, the school, traditional school districts will see a greater percentage, significantly greater percentage with moderate or severe interventions or who require moderate or severe interventions. Right. And that's where you have uh, uh, the, the conundrum that Claudia was talking about, where the district is uh, has the obligation, rightfully so, to uh, provide services to the students with the most that require the most significant interventions, and those are the most expensive programs. Right, that's a really good point, Ed. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, you, you're right. And what we see in charter schools a lot of times is they may have a very robust, um, you know, speech and language program but they aren't serving kids with um, much more severe, moderate to severe disabilities. Yes. Yeah, and that's often because the districts are just better set up um, to handle problems. They have more resources, they're larger. Exactly. Yeah, but it also creates an uneven distribution of that expensive cost. Okay, so this is all great. Ed, the issues we've just been discussing, the issues Claudia talked about, those have been around for a long time, right? I mean, as long as you or I or Claudia have been working on charter school issues, we've heard our school district clients complain about just these issues, um, about the uneven playing field. What's different now? What are we seeing happen right now? What? So I referred before to the concept of uh, stimulating com- competition uh, in order to try and improve performances of both charter schools and tr- traditional uh, schools. And so that has been sort of the focus of the conversation. Are they working with each other to create these great educational labs? Or is the competition serving both the district and the charter school to allow both to improve their student, their pupil performances? And so that's the the way the conversation has been, at least for like the past 10, 15 years. And so for the first time, what I, what what we're seeing is there's actually a conversation at the statewide level where public officials wanted to discuss and and analyze the impacts that charter schools are having on the traditional school districts um, for all of the issues that that Claudia talked about was talking about before. There's been this shift in the political and legal winds and the conversation that used to really focus on competition and really comparing performance, based on a lot of things going on at the state level, you're seeing, and and in the individual larger districts, you're seeing a conversation uh, about, uh, well, how is having a dense population of charter schools in a particular urban district impacting that urban district's ability 
that urban school district's ability to serve its students in its traditional public schools. Right. And so that's the conversation that's happening right now. So what's causing that? Can we first start by talking about the teacher strikes in Los Angeles and Oakland? How did charter schools become part of the conversation there? Because it was a really significant issue, right? It was a significant issue. Uh, It was an issue that the uh, teachers union was making sure was front and center and in all of the talking points um, and the communications coming out, you know, it was uh, the focus for the teachers union was to make it less about pay and benefits and more about how can we better serve our kids, i.e., how can we better, what are the impacts that charter schools are having on our district and our ability to better serve our students in traditional public schools? And it's not a surprise that, you know, those conversations that were coming out of Los Angeles Unified and Oakland Unified, you're talking about two large school districts uh, that have a tremendous density of uh, charter schools. Mm -hmm. And so charter schools and the discussion about the impact that charter schools were having that were causing the conditions to go out that were causing the conditions that were having these teachers go out on strike became a front and center conversation. Interesting, yeah. So, Claudia, you mentioned that a school district cannot by law consider the financial impact that a charter school will have, right? So how has that been coming up? Well, as Ed mentioned, um, teachers unions and school districts throughout the state have been starting to voice concerns about the costs um, the burdens on on districts of uh, charter schools. And uh, in the recent LA Unified strike, for example, the teachers were arguing that the proliferation of charter schools in the district was draining resources from the district that should properly have gone to hiring more counselors, librarians, and school nurses, and to lowering class sizes. So as I understand it, some of our larger districts are actually calling for a moratorium on charter schools. Is that right, Ed? That's correct. And, and to clarify, they themselves, those, these districts, uh, I'll think of Los Angeles Unified, West Contra Costa Unified in, in Contra Costa County, mm-hmm. uh, a, another school district that has a significant charter community, uh, Oakland Unified. When they're talking about moratoriums, what they're asking is not they themselves declaring a moratorium on charter schools, but they're talking about we would ask the state to declare a moratorium on the establishment of new charter schools. Okay, so now I want to move on to politics. So first, let's talk about the federal level. Ed, how do charter schools... Can I make one clarification? Oh, of course, Ed. Go right ahead. For all of... Well, for the, for the moratoriums, and I, I just want to say, you know, asking the state for a moratorium on charter schools is something that I would... I would have, you would have not seen two years ago. I just, you would not have seen it. There were a few districts that have possibly discussed it, but actually coming out full with full-throated endorsement of, of these school boards that have thriving charter communities to say, enough is enough. We need to, we need the state to look at whether we should be issuing a, a, a moratorium or not. They, they wanted the moratorium for as long as, or they wanted the moratorium pending a state analysis of the impacts that the charters were having on the traditional school districts. Okay. So it wasn't give us a moratorium forever. It was give us a moratorium so that the state can look at the impacts these charters are having on our districts. Right. Okay. That's great. Okay. Yeah. And I think for a lot of folks, that's been a really pretty stunning turn of events. Agree. Yeah. Okay. 
Now I want to move on to politics. First, I want to talk about the federal level. Ed, how have charter schools figured into presidential politics in recent years, for instance? Well, I've, I've always said uh, over the past 20 years, no matter who you voted for for president or where you stood, whichever party you stood for, presidential candidates, Democrat and Republican alike, mm-hmm. um, were basically full throat endorsers of charter schools. Mm-hmm. That was the true for um, Bill Clinton. That was true for... Um, that was true for Barack Obama, and it's um, it's true, maybe even turned up a little further for for uh, Donald Trump. I mean, he he's he seems to be a supporter of vouchers. Once again, getting back to the concept of money going to uh, private schools. Mm-hmm. However, uh, at the federal level, you just saw across the the spectrum support for charter schools. Right. Do you think that's going to change? Um, I think there's more of a discussion about it. I mean, the bottom line is that uh, I think you will see maybe with this uh, uh, cast of uh, Democratic candidates for president, um, more of a discussion. But the bottom line is um, at the federal level, the concept of charter schools and the support of charter schools has has relatively less impact than at, than the discussion at the state level as to whether there's support for charter schools. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, federal policy and federal money is not necessarily enough to determine whether or not charters will be successful in a state. I, that's just not what I've seen. It's mm-hmm. more the conversations that are having at the, that are being had at the state level. Okay, great. Good. So let's talk about California. We have a new governor, and we have a new superintendent of public instruction in California this year. So let's start with Tony Thurman, the new superintendent of public instruction. Ed, can you talk about the issues that came up in that very competitive race this past year and how they pertain to charter schools? Sure. I mean, the, the, the conversation about um, uh, superintendent of public instruction in California in this race was relatively similar to four years prior Um there, the candidate that was running in this past race and the race before that was a guy named Marshall Tuck, mm-hmm. who was uh, had basically come from the charter world. He was a green dot executive, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the money, or a lot of money that he was receiving, was from California Charter Schools Association and its PAC, as well as basically charter school supporters. And in this past election, he was running against Tony Thurmond, who had significant support from the California Teachers Association. Tony Thurmond was a former board member with West Contra Costa Unified, Mm -hmm. uh, became a state assemblyman, and then was running for the SPI position. And the, the dividing lines and really the issue that really separated Tuck and Tony Thurmond was basically the, the simple issue of charter schools. That's that was where the focus was because they were very similar on other policies and they were both uh, what I would consider progressive Democrats, except for the issue of charter schools. And so the CCSA, the California Charter Schools Association money was going to Tuck, the CTA money was going to Tony Thurmond, and Tony Thurmond prevailed and is now the superintendent of public instruction. Okay, so Claudia, our last governor, Governor Brown, had famously founded a charter school in Oakland and he was considered very friendly to charters. In fact, like his predecessor, Governor Schwarzenegger, Governor Brown vetoed legislation that would have made charter schools subject to transparency laws, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Both governors, Schwarzenegger and Brown, vetoed a number of earlier attempts to pass legislation that would have made charters and their governing boards subject to transparency sunshine laws such as the Brown Act and the Political Reform Act in California. The Brown Act is the Open Meeting Act, right? Right. Yeah. But in December, after the last election, we finally got an attorney general opinion on this issue. So, Claudia, can you talk about that opinion? Sure. Well, that opinion was on hold at the attorney general's office for seven years. Wow. Uh, but they finally issued an opinion in December. And uh, it's it's hard to know why it took so long for them to do that. But speculation is because the attorney general's office was waiting for a change in the governor's office. But anyway, they finally issued an opinion in December. And they concluded in that opinion that charter schools and their governing boards, like other local educational agencies, are subject to the Brown Act, the California Public Records Act, and conflict of interest provisions in government code section 1090 and the political reform act now these laws never really explicitly exempted charter schools but charter schools have long argued that they were exempt by virtue of what we know as the mega waiver which essentially makes charters exempt from most state laws that govern other school districts Okay, so just to clarify, the Charter Schools Act contains this so-called mega waiver. Exactly. As a statute in statute? That's true. Right. So, Ed, do you know a little bit about the background here? Why did we get this opinion now? I think it's exactly for what Claudia said in that the Attorney General's office had been waiting for some time because this uh, the request for the Attorney General opinion came seven years ago from the Lassen County District Attorney. Mm-hmm. who had asked these questions about what specifically conflict of interest laws apply to charter schools. And that came out of, I, I, my understanding is that that came out of a case uh, out of uh, a district in Lassen County uh, called Westwood Unified, mm-hmm. where there was pretty much a mess made by a former superintendent of the school district who was also became the founder of a, an independently operated charter school who was also contracting with that charter school. Oh, my. So it was like a perfect storm of potential conflicts of interest for which the charter school was almost closed down. Mm-hmm. And there was, I, I can't recall if the superintendent or former superintendent had, had been, um, was prosecuting, was, was actually prosecuted, but he was facing prosecution. Mm-hmm. And so the district attorney wanting to know what laws apply asked the attorney general this opinion. Now, that matter is, you know, long, long come and gone. But as Claudia said, the attorney general seemed to be waiting for there to be a legislative fix mm-hmm. uh, that never came. Mm-hmm. Every time that the legislature would pass laws, the state legislature would pass laws saying charter schools need to comply with these laws, um, they would be vetoed by the prior two governors, Governor Schwarzenegger and Governor Brown. Mm-hmm. And so... Now that we, I wasn't, I'm not sure if it was a signal that uh, Governor Newsom had been elected and therefore the Attorney General felt comfortable issuing his opinion, but it, it was issued. And then subsequently, uh, the incoming uh, newly elected governor wanted to codify basically this Attorney General opinion in law. Okay, so instead of there being a legislative fix before the opinion, we got the opinion and then we got this new law. Claudia, you want to describe that? 
Right. And so things have happened very rapidly since uh, the AG's opinion was issued in December. And uh, just this March, uh, Governor Newsom signed into law SB 126. And um, that did codify the attorney general's opinion that charter schools are subject to all those same public integrity laws as other public and local agencies. Now, this law is going to take effect on um, January 1st, 2020. And it's interesting, there's no grandfathering provision in the law that would exempt existing charters. So that means that when we come up to January 1st, 2020, all charter schools and their governing boards are subject to those transparency laws. As Ed kind of discussed, um, unlike um, his predecessors, Governor Newsom was, at, was actually a driving force behind SB 126. And it was fast-tracked through the legislature at his urging. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that the bill passed the Senate floor with a 34 to 2 vote mm -hmm. and the Assembly on a 63 to 9 vote, which wow. seems to suggest that Governor Brown's pro-charter stance wasn't universal in Sacramento, at least with regard to these, these public integrity laws. Yeah, for sure. So... Ed, what do we know about this new governor's views on charter issues? Um, the, I, I know that there was the expectation that there would, if, if if he were elected, there would probably be more legislation coming down the pike that would regulate charter school operations. Mm -hmm. And Newsom was relatively transparent since the beginning of his candidacy that he wanted to do exactly what this new legislation did, which was create transparency for charter schools. Mm -hmm. And even you know, prior to the June 2018 primary um, in California, the governor, the gubernatorial primary, um, the California Charter Schools Association came out and endorsed Antonio Villaraigosa, mm -hmm. who was basically uh, uh, Newsom's primary Democratic challenger. Right. Um, and the the it was a tense relationship really between California Charter School Association and uh, Newsom's campaign from the beginning, where you had statements made by the California Charter Schools Association that you that Newsom was a candidate who was going to inflict major harm on the schools, but claimed to be the charter school's friend. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that may have been that that raised such concern for the Charter Schools Association was that. Uh, uh, Gavin Newsom had obtained the endorsement of California Teachers Association. Now, mm -hmm. every gubernatorial candidate um, or every cycle of the governor's election, somebody is being endorsed by CTA. But in this case, I think because of the transparency uh, laws that Newsom was so vocal on, that caused some concern for CCSA. Now, ultimately, in regard to this legislation, um, the California Charter School Association did not oppose it, but mm -hmm. in the early goings of uh, of, of of 2018, um, they were very concerned about about Newsom. Now, where Newsom stands on these other the other pieces of legislation coming down the pike, uh, nobody really knows. I think you know just he has called for a task force. Right. Uh, he 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 asked Tony Thurman, the superintendent of public instruction, to establish and study a task force. Um, uh, over the next few months to study the impacts of charter schools on traditional school districts. Mm -hmm. So basically uh, uh, putting in place exactly what 
the districts who asked for a moratorium while the, while the state studied this, giving those districts exactly what they wanted, short of the moratorium. Um, and so all of these things are kind of signaling that, you know, getting back to our original premise of the governor is very interested in making sure that the that the impacts of charter schools on traditional districts are being are being looked at. Mm-hmm. Whether he takes it a step further and adopts all of the legislation coming that's you know that's being um, initiated now that talks about limiting uh, charter school petition or charter schools petitioners' ability to appeal to county offices and who can be a charter school authorizer has yet to be seen. But I can tell you that the traditional district advocates are really going for the brass ring in regard to trying to get legislation passed that would uh, significantly curtail the growth of charter schools. Okay. Okay, so I want to ask Claudia now to talk a little bit about what Ed was just referring to. We've got a raft of new legislation that may or may not go anywhere, and we know how this goes. But Claudia, can you talk about some of the charter school bills that are swirling around right now in Sacramento? Yeah, sure. And and Ed, I completely agree. These are totally pie in the sky proposals. And some of them are, I think we're going to get a lot of pushback on. And um, I don't think a number of them are going to enjoy the same traction that the uh, transparency law bill um, enjoyed. Um, for example, there's AB 1505. And that one would actually repeal laws that allow county offices and the state board to authorize charters. And so they basically do away with those countywide charters and the state statewide charters that I mentioned early on during our discussion. And even more controversial uh, that you alluded to, Ed, is AB 1506, which would place a cap on the number of charter schools in the state. And it's from what I'm reading, that seems to be the big ticket item for unions. And then AB 1508 would allow district boards who are considering charter petitions to consider the financial, academic, and facilities impacts that the charter school would have on the district. Wow. So those would be pretty significant I, I, changes. Yeah. What do you think, Ed? I was just going to say, I think that I think um, were I telling fortunes that I think the issue of, I agree with you, Claudia, I think uh, AB 1506, placing a cap on the number of charter schools is going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be sort of a, a what's, what's seen as like a, a, a quick fix. But I think that when we look at AB 1508, that may be something that because there has been so, discuss, so much discussion on financial and facilities impacts on these school districts that have such a high density of charter schools. I think that's where the rubber meets the road. And I think that may that may become like the essential conversation. Mm-hmm. Can we look at financial and facilities impacts on a traditional district while we're looking at a charter school petition? Interesting. That's been the discussion for the last few years. And I think that's where you're going to see um, really the focus on the charter reform legislation to be. Yeah, that would be a real game changer. Yeah, absolutely. What a sea change that would be if that law passed. Yeah. So, and I think I can guess, but um, how's the charter school movement reacting to these efforts? <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a, a, a wait and see, mm-hmm. but um, I think that uh, they are, you know, they're going to oppose the cap on charter schools. They're going to oppose the the impacts on the 
financial and facilities mm-hmm. uh, statutes or, or the ability to review financial or facilities impacts. Um, but this stuff is coming so fast and so quick that I don't know that they've necessarily had an opportunity to mobilize the opposition and state where they are on specific bills yet. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So over the time that I've worked on charter school matters, it's always been my observation that the movement started out with minimal regulation, and, and that was by design. And over time, more regulations have been imposed. It seems like every few years, we see a new constraint on that no wild regulation, wild rest that charter schools started out with. I often point out to school district clients that the Charter Schools Act takes up about 30 pages of the Ed Code, but there's over 1,500 pages devoted to K-12 schools. So there's still a significant imbalance. Would you agree, Ed, though, that there's a trend over time to regulate charter schools in a way that was never part of the original framework? And what does that mean for both charters and school districts that oversee them? Yeah, that, that's a great question. There's no doubt that over the past 10 or 15 years, charter schools have become more regulated, mm-hmm. right? Since the what was originally conceived back in 1992 when the Charter Schools Act was first passed. Um, in regard to the impacts it's having on the school districts that oversee them, it's sort of a blessing and a curse, right? So uh, I think that the, tr- those, the advocates for traditional districts that want to see more regulation on the charter schools, that's good. Mm-hmm. And uh, for them, that's good. But at, and, and there are some laws where there's clear guidelines. Where if, they're prov- if the traditional districts are providing oversight of the charter schools, there's, you know, th- then if, when there are clear guidelines and it states in the statute, charter schools uh, need to be compliant with the statute, that's good. It provides clarity for the school district. And at the same time, it pres- creates more laws and more regulation for the school district that is providing the oversight to make mm-hmm. sure that the charter school is complying with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when we talk about oversight, what I generally summarize to clients is when we're talking about oversight, what we're looking at is, are they fiscally uh, sound and are they complying with their charter and are they complying with the law? So when you add more laws for charter schools to be compliant with, you provide more oversight obligations for a chartering authority. Yeah, good point. And then there's also the issue of, with this greater regulation, some charter schools uh, or, or some laws are not so clear as to whether charter schools are supposed to uh, be compliant with mm-hmm. them. And that creates sort of this quandary for traditional districts as to what laws are they supposed to be making sure they're, the, the, the charter schools under their uh, guidance or under their supervision are uh, complying with. Right. No, that's a really good point. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. On a recent podcast, I was discussing with a couple of our colleagues, Lou Lozano and Darren Kamea, you both know them, how the Janus decision is propelling issues between public agencies and their unions right now. It's a significant conversation that's happening in parallel to what we're talking about here. Ed, can you comment on how much of this conversation about charter schools is being driven by the labor movement in California? And because we all know that the labor union is a very strong force in state politics. Right. And, and I think that what we would need, well, first of all, it starts with the premise of independently operated charter schools are typically not unionized, right? Mm-hmm. So that is what, from the get-go of this whole discussion about charter schools in California, 
the concept that charter schools are usually not unionized uh, is something that has drawn the ire of CTA. And so then flash forward 26 years later, 27 years later, and when we were talking just prior in this podcast about the, the focus of the teacher strikes being on, or at least being on uh, charter schools and the, and the impacts charter schools are having to having on traditional school districts. Mm-hmm. So you, and, and you'll see, you know, CTA is 100% behind all of these, uh, or behind, in, by behind, I mean, in support mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this legislation to cap the number of charter schools, mm-hmm. to um, add reasons to de- be able to deny a charter school petition. So, and like you say, they're pretty, CTA is a pretty powerful player in state politics. Right. And so they have, um, they will be front and center at the tip of the spear in regard to trying to push regulation on charter schools. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's great. That's great insight. Okay. So as we think about closing this discussion, I have an open-ended question for both of you. Can you make some predictions about where this conversation is headed next? Claudia, do you want to go first? Hmm. Uh, well, I think it's possible that we will see a cap on the number of charters annually. And I think that one, because as we talked about, this seems to be a really big issue for the unions, and it's going to give districts and um, some breathing room. But some of the other proposals in play, such as consideration of the financial impact on a district, seem less likely to me that to pass, at least during this next legislative session. Um, So I was reading this article recently, and in it, Governor Newsom said that he was exhausted by all the polarizing debates that are surrounding charter schools. And he said he was hopeful, but not naive, about the possibility of any consensus about significant charter reform. But as as Ed did mention earlier, Um, He has asked Tony Thurman, the superintendent of public instruction, to commission a study of the financial impacts of charters on district budgets. So we will see. Okay. Um, Ed, what do you think? Do you want to predict where this conversation is headed? I think the conversation is going to continue. And I think the conversation about the impact that charter schools are having on traditional districts is going to continue. But it's a very esoteric, complicated discussion, right? When you're trying to, moving the conversation, as we said before, from just competition between charter schools and traditional districts to, hey, why aren't they on equal footing? Why can't, why are charter schools, I mean, why are school districts that have very dense charter school populations being impacted in a way that is unfair? That's a tough narrative to explain in very simple terms. Mm -hmm. So that's, Mm -hmm where I think the focus, in order to sustain the conversa- that conversation, the narrative is gonna have to be simplified so people get it. Why, are, why is a traditional school district suffering yeah. if kids are leaving and joining a charter school? Money, why is a traditional district suffering if a charter school is, is, is basically forced to co-locate with that traditional neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. All of these narratives need to be explained in simplified terms, and then this conversation will continue to go on. If it doesn't, then I think you're going to see, then, 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 you know, you may have this 
sort of uh, belief among the public that really the teachers union traditional districts just want to regulate charter charter schools for their for the sake of regulating charter schools mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that can't happen if the traditional districts want to be able to um, basically uh, you know be able to um, narrate uh, that they are being impacted by a high density of charter schools in their community. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, I'm going to look forward to bringing you both back on a future podcast to see if these predictions come true and how all this plays out. It's been a great discussion. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Ed. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com dot com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.